0: nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published in Goucher College's MFA program for nonfiction. Yeah, baby. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down, partner. What's up, CNFers? It's CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast where I talk to badass writers, filmmakers, radio producers, and podcasters about the art and craft of telling true stories. Today's guest is Jenny Odell.
1: It's this, you know, you, you can't write for everyone. Um, and if you did, it wouldn't
0: be good. Contextual artist, teacher at everyone's safety school, Stanford University, and most recently author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. This is how I came to know of Jenny. Saw an Instagram post of her with Austin Kleon. I was headed up to Portland to see Austin talk. I saw Jenny had a book. It looked uh, it, it looked intriguing AF. I requested the book on NetGalley, I got the book on NetGalley, I then emailed Jenny, and we got to talking. That's how this shit works. You can subscribe to the show, you know that? Of course you do, it's a podcast. I mean, it doesn't cost you anything unless you want it to. I'm planning a Patreon thing so you can become a patron of the show, that's exciting, and help keep the lights on in the studio. In the meantime, I mean, it's always going to be free. Go get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Head over to brendanomero.com. Hey, for show notes and to subscribe to my monthly newsletter, chock full of fun stuff I curate over the course of a month. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. As I await edits on my stupid baseball book, I started writing a children's sports book with a young female protagonist. I feel like this is in my wheelhouse from a maturity perspective. My dad has been hounding me for years that I should write a sports book for kids or a series of them, specifically girls. And I, he, he wished it's something he wished he had done when he was younger, especially when he was coaching my sister and her teams growing up. My sister is ten years older than I am. I never one hundred percent poo pooed it, but. And you know, of course, I have my own nonfiction goals or whatever, but I figured I'd come around to it when I had a good enough idea. So I don't know if I'm writing this book because I want to or because I wanted some paternal validation. Because when I told the old coach about it, he loved the idea and was more engaged in our conversation than over any other crap that I write, even the crap I win awards for. So I'm sure on some level it's about wanting approval and validation. I wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun, and so far it's really fun. The girl's name is Molly Rawlings, and she's 10 or 11 years old. She plays baseball and is fucking pissed that she's being told that she has to start playing softball. And away we go. Creative Nonfiction Podcast, CNF. It's also sponsored by Bay Path University's MFA in Creative Nonfiction. Discover your story. Bay Path is the first and only university offering a no residency, fully accredited MFA focusing exclusively on creative nonfiction. Attend full or part-time from anywhere in the world. In the Bay Path MFA, you'll find small online classes in a dynamic and supportive community. You'll master the techniques of good writing. And uh, good writing. Yes, good writing from acclaimed authors and editors. Learn about publishing and teaching through professional internships and complete a master's thesis that will form the foundation for your memoir or collection of personal essays. Special elective courses include contemporary women's stories, travel and food writing, family history, spiritual writing, and an optional week-long summer residency on the Emerald Isle in Ireland. It's my brogue. It's a book. With guest writers including Andre DeBuse III, Anne Hood, Mia Gallagher, and others. Start dates in late August, January, and May. Find out more at baypath.edu slash MFA. Yes. Yes, Jenny O'Dell is here. At Genitor on Twitter. Just Google it or search it. I don't feel like spelling it right now. She's wicked smart. I'd totally treat her to an extra large French vanilla iced coffee with extra cream and extra sugar at Dunkin' Donuts if we were closer together, like physically closer together. This is a fun one. I hope you enjoy it. Episode 151. We love palindromes here, and this is the Palindrome Podcast. Enjoy my conversation with Jenny O'Dell. I feel like, you know, you and people like Austin, like the type of work you guys do kind of makes, I think it makes everyone, especially in this day and age where things are so fast. I think the work that you guys are doing try, has a tendency to make us at least slow down a little bit. And is that something that you're kind of conscious of in, in your day-to-day actions and your day-to-day production of art that you want to at least build in some time to take those breaths and to slow down a bit.
1: I, I don't know if I'm as intentional and organized about it as Austin is because I, <laughs> I feel like actually I, you know, even like the moment that the book kind of comes out of it wasn't quite planned. Um it was more like like I find myself doing a lot of things like, you know, I'll go for a really long walk, but it's not like, you know, I woke up in the morning and said like I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go for a long walk. It's like, I got really overwhelmed and then just was like, I need to go for a walk right now.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah.
1: So I feel like I'm, I procrastinate a lot and I sort of like, I have this messy way of going about it, which ultimately ends up with, you know, having lots of time to quote unquote do nothing, but it's not. um, It often feels like I'm just sort of doing it out of like survival mode rather than like actually planning to do it.
0: Yeah, like it's kind of a, an escape hatch for you in the cockpit, cockpit of your airplane. It's just like I need exactly. to pull this ripcord and get out of here for a while.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and ironically, it's been harder to do lately because the the turns out that PR for a book is a lot of work.
0: <laughs> You're right, right? Of course. Um, yeah. How are you uh, an advocate of having you know fairly? I won't for lack of a better term, strict routines, like at least something you can sort of hang your day on every day that no matter how crazy things are with book promotion or with your work or, or whatever, that these are so certain things that I will do every day that lets me check in with myself.
1: Basically. I mean, I still go to the Rose garden a lot, which I talk about in the book. Um, I kind of do that whenever I can get a chance, but that sort of whenever I can get a chance is getting harder and harder to find right now. Um, but I will say um, I have kind of an unusual situation because I am um, I teach twice a week and I my teaching job is basically, I mean, it's a full-time job, even though I only have to be somewhere twice a week. So during the school year, I it's honestly just like an ongoing struggle to have any, obviously the teaching part is a routine, but everything else kind of gets smushed to the side. So last summer, um, while I was writing the book, I had a really amazing routine, which was just to go to basically an art studio that I have um on the other side of Oakland and you know I would go pretty much at the same time every day I would get lunch at the same place around the same time in the afternoon I would go you know for the same walk look at the same birds mm-hmm. <laughs> um and then pretty much finish up around the same time and then you know happily it was right next to a really good beer bar and so I could usually get somebody to meet me there <laughs> um you know just like a friend to like um, you know, get out of that, like, really intense, like, headspace, which made it easier for me to just, like, go home and have dinner and go to sleep. And that routine was so great and sustainable, and I am super nostalgic for it right now. <laughs> um, I'm very much looking forward to doing something similar this summer. Um, I was just amazed at how much easier it was to work. I don't even know, honestly, if the book would have been possible to write without that.
0: Hmm. I know John McPhee, he's, uh, you know, the prolific New Yorker writer and author. Um, I But pretty much nine months a year, he he teaches. And then his summertime is kind of like that fallow period where he's able to pursue writing projects, even as he's pushing 90 years old. But that's kind of always been the case with him that he he never put a whole lot of pressure on himself to be a very prolific writer. He just kind of built in these times to reboot and recharge, and then he would be able to year after year sort of attack longer magazine pieces that would ultimately turn into books. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of gets to a lot of the points you write about in How to Do Nothing that you can kind of build in these sort of fallow crops where you let sort of the natural landscape of your own interiority sort of replenish itself. Uh, Does that make any sense to you?
1: Yeah, totally. It's like um, creating a space instead of trying to determine what's going to be there. (laughs) Um, Like I think, you know, after a while, after, you know, especially after last summer, um, doing that every day. And then, you know, throughout the summer, I also went on a couple of just short trips by myself to stay, you know, in some cabin somewhere. Um, And I have my own routine for that. Like I have a grocery list, that is exactly optimized for one person for three days with a limited <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> um, so that's like my, my standard shopping list. But I think after doing, you know, both of those things long enough, it's like you kind of learn to like trust yourself and certain processes. And, and by the end I was sort of able to say like, okay, if I read, you know, this list of books, and I give you know I read them with enough time to actually process them and then I have this you know x number of weeks to just sort of like walk around and at the end like something will come out I don't know what it'll be but it's not going to be nothing you know like Mm. um, rather than kind of like sitting and trying to actually like very meticulously plan out the whole thing or just like worry about whether anything's going to come out or um, at all it's like I think that's what I love so much about the example of do nothing farming that I talk about in the book where it's like, you know, it's basically similar to permaculture, but it it comes so much from like knowledge and trust um, in the way natural systems work, like knowing that certain things will grow in certain ways. And if you just create the conditions and don't try to kind of overdetermine it, it will you know, turn out being better than anything you could sort of come up with.
0: That's a great point you make. That's towards the end of the book too. And um, so, how did you learn to trust trust that process to you that that maybe you might read an entire book and you only get maybe a sentence worth of information out of it, and not panic when that happens? <laughs> um, yeah, I think
1: I I learned. I mean, so much of this I I learned specifically last summer because you know I haven't even been writing, you know, as a, and, you know, obviously I've been writing for a long time, but like writing actual finished pieces for, for that long. Um, But I, you know, on the, on the flip side, you know, sometimes you'll go, you know, see a movie or something that you don't think has anything to do with what you're writing about. And then you'd get a whole, you know, not a chapter out of it, but you know, you, that just as much as you might read a whole book and not get anything out of it, you might experience something that that you get a huge amount out of that you weren't planning for. Um, and so I was noticing as I was going along, that a lot of stuff in the book was, um, things that I hadn't even experienced yet when I wrote the book proposal. Um, and I kind of started to realize like, oh, you know, there's going to be a lot in this book that I encountered in the process of writing it. And it's, um, you know, both surprising and humbling, right? Like I have this idea of what the book is going to be. Meanwhile, like life is happening and I'm like encountering things. And obviously some of that is going to make it in there. So, um I think once I relinquished this idea of like control that I'm going to like read this list of book books and get these things out of it like absolutely, and once I kind of gave up on that it it actually made space for those things that I didn't expect to be part of it to kind of come in
0: you know growing up in the in Northern California, would you say that your your upbringing in a sense like groomed you in a particular way to make sense of this? of this sort of digital landscape that we're in that enabled you to write a book of this nature, just given where you, where you came from and and your upbringing?
1: I think it probably did. I mean, I think it also has to do with the fact that I'm still here, (laughs) like in a way. So I have a lot of investment in in like a place, but um, I don't, you know, I'm not sure, but I, I have the feeling that when, you know, someone, especially maybe someone who hasn't been here, but even someone who has been here, there's this like idea that Silicon Valley is this, it's like not really a place. Like it's just this kind of abstract idea. Um, Like if you think about Silicon Valley, you kind of just conjure up like images of not even the actual technology company campuses, but just like the technology itself, like app icons or something. Um, And I think that maybe growing up here, um and and in particular like you know my parents were very into the outdoors so like not just being here but spending a lot of time outdoors it's like I I am easily reminded that this is an actual geographic location that has you know it's part of a bioregion just like any other place um I've also spent some time on the campuses of some of these companies um just you know like as an artist uh, or an artist in residence and kind of been able to observe just like the physical reality like I mean the Facebook campus is in the weirdest place like if you actually go there it's like next to a salt marsh hmm. um and uh just in a very kind of strange part of the city so there's all these kind of um uh, physical aspects to this place that I think I I maybe grew up being aware of just because I was here um and then maybe that predisposed you know me to think about um this strange tension between being attentive to physical reality you know versus the highly abstract world that is created by these technologies
0: do you think that staying close to home into your your early adulthood here has lent that that ethos of that that you've said that you like finding rather than making being in your own, like living in kind of where you grew up, has that ethos really helped you just re-familiarize yourself or maybe relearn this place that you've known for three decades?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, nothing is more humbling than finding out that there's something that you've literally seen for your entire life and not known what it was. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think it would be different. I, I mean, you would. I think you could still have a similar experience, you know, if you move to a different city and then after you moved there, you decided that you suddenly were going to get very into identifying plants and birds, and that would still be a really amazing experience. It's a bit more of a surreal experience if you decide to do that in the same place that you've always lived, because you get this sort of uncanny feeling of, um, you know, for example, like cedar waxwings are a type of bird that are very common here, and during part of the year, and they make this really high-pitched sound I learned what they were about two years ago, and I can now, you know, very easily identify that sound. But I did have this moment um, where I was on the Stanford campus, and I heard, I heard it, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And sort of buried in my mind, like I remember hearing this sound many times before, and it just like barely, it didn't quite surface to consciousness. Like it's a sort of familiar, but not um and so I have that experience a lot because I'm here where the things that I'm learning about for the first time are also things that I've probably been like pointing my eyes and ears at for my entire
0: life Mm. yeah the those those things that have always been in plain sight but you just haven't had like you just haven't noticed them yet like you know bird noticing is what you like to call bird watching yes yeah and it's it's so great that you you know that that you like it because you oftentimes uh, anyone who spends any time out in nature, you hear them first, most likely, and then you try to set up camp and, uh, and just kind of wait for them. Uh, and, uh, oh, were you always into, um, you know, bird noticing, even, even growing up?
1: Um, I mean, not definitely not, um, as
0: specifically as I
1: am now, but, um, like I said, my parents were very, um, enthusiastic hikers Um, and then I also spent a lot of time at you know different summer camps in the area and a lot of because of where we are and kind of close to the mountains a lot of those camps tend to be like science camps or like you know things where you learn about different kinds of trees I don't know how much of that really stuck in terms of like information but it definitely um, cultivated at least like um, attention to you know that kind of stuff You know, I think it might've been different if I had not gone to those, if I had grown up somewhere where it was kind of more in an urban environment all the time and maybe not, didn't have as many opportunities to, you know, specifically like learn about different kinds of leaves or something. But I, at the same time, it does feel like something that kind of didn't resurface for me for a long time until maybe, yeah, like a couple years ago. So, um, I'm not totally sure where it went during that time. (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah, in the, in the last couple of years, it's really been kind of a, a learning process for me. Like I feel um, it's funny, like I, I've noticed that when, when when adults learn things about, you know, uh, ecology or science or animals or anything like that kind of reminds you of being a kid, hmm. which is a really interesting thing where it's like, why why does that have to, you know, why don't we just keep learning about that? You know, why does that have this like connotation of like being in an elementary you know, school classroom or something. Um, Like I just went on a field trip this past weekend to uh, basically like a a house where this woman who has a permit to do so um, rehabilitates corvids. So that's like ravens, crows, um, scrub jays, magpies. Um, Those are all like really, really smart birds. They can, some of them can mimic human speech. Um, They definitely can like solve solve problems. And, you know, the, the tour group was adults. Um, and I was probably the youngest person there. Um, but the woman who runs it normally takes these birds into classrooms and shows them, you know, to elementary school children to, you know, educate them about how smart these birds are. And I just noticed that kind of like the facial expressions of the people in our group or just like the kinds of things that were being said were so exactly the way, you know, when you're a kid and you go to a zoo or something, and you're just like, completely in awe. Um, and it's interesting that we have fewer and fewer of those moments as we get older.
0: Isn't it sad that that gets drummed and beaten out of us? Like probably starting in high school, it's probably when it starts to really get drummed out of you. Isn't that really sad?
1: It's so sad. And it's also just like what I, I I don't know. I'm obviously biased, but like I, I can't think of a better feeling than that. That is just hands down. My favorite feeling is to just, I mean, I wish like I could show you this moment when the woman walked out and she has this giant raven on her arm and like, everyone just got really quiet. And it was like, it's, it just felt very much like aliens are among us, you know, mm. <laughs> this like, this like strange being, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It was just, it's, it's like, you completely forget. I mean, I think that's kind of part of what I'm trying to get at. And the book is like, you kind of forget yourself in that moment. Like, you're not thinking about anything except for this thing that you're looking at, because you're just so absorbed, and you, you kind of don't want to miss any detail of it.
0: Yeah, like a, a few weeks ago, uh, a friend of mine from the East Coast had come out, come out here to Oregon. He was just happened to be passing through, and he had some time to kill. And you know, we just went out into my backyard, and we were just like throwing a baseball back and forth, like two ten-year-olds would do. And it was like the most fun I've had in like ages. It was just like I had this perma on my face just from throwing a stupid baseball back and forth. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that it's funny too, right? Because it's like those moments, it's something like, it's not quite cerebral. It's like, I have always wondered why whenever I see night herons, which is the other type of bird that I talk a lot about in the book. Yep, yep. Um, I do that happens to me too. I get this goofy smile on my face every time I don't. And it's like, that's not, I'm not making, I'm not, you know, analyzing like, Oh, I am very happy to see these night herons here because, you know, I mean, I could go in you know, like, I'm, I'm happy that the species is doing okay. Or like, they're very interesting because they're kind of specific to this area. It's like, no, I just have some sort of, like, instinctual, like, childlike reaction to seeing this, like, weird, grumpy-looking
0: animal. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love that you call them grumpy, and also that you call them the kernels too, because they hang out at KFC. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love, like, speaking of, like, grumpy-looking birds, like, I-, I love great blue herons because they kind of look like wizards, right? Like, when they're... Yeah. They kind of look like they've got this cloak and they're hunched over they look old, just they've been around for like 400 years and they <laughs> know everything and they're just watching you. It's I love that look about them.
1: Yeah. And there's so the way they move too is
0: like so circumspect, um, like with those like long kind of like frog leg legs. <laughs> yeah. And what's amazing, too, when I had an ornithology, took an ornithology course back in college. It's just based on whatever aspect ratios of wings and whatnot. But it's kind of crazy to think that a great blue heron and like a mallard, they weigh about the same. It's But they're Ooh. yeah, like in terms of mass, I mean, you'd have to like Google it or whatever. But I seem to remember my professor saying like the, those two birds weigh about the same, but they're just, you know, they just distribute that body mass so differently based on, you know you know, selective pressures over millions of years, but it's just kind of crazy how to think, to think that those two, you wouldn't equate them in terms of, you know, balancing each other out on a seesaw.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I think that's like, it reminds me, um, uh, I took a a diving birds class um, through Golden Gate Audubon Society, and um, it was really only about four kind of classes or types of diving birds. But it, uh, you know, similarly, so much of it was about anatomy and you know, if you're a bird that spends your entire life on the ocean, you have to have all of these crazy adaptations to keep the water out, you know, to deal with the salt, like all kinds of um, you know, like flying, all of these different kind of mechanical like challenges and just like the sheer variation of of form, but also just like weird just weird stuff. Like there was one type of bird, I can't remember which one it was, that just eats feathers and then they turn into this weird feather ball and it helps them like digest things in their stomach and just like very very strange like you don't have to look that far into it before you find something that seems very alien
0: yeah
1: and and i you know i i like you know watching any documentaries about any birds anywhere but i feel like we often see like exotic things that are we think of as exotic um on say like a nature special or something and it's easy to forget that like, a mallard duck is really crazy. Like, if you just look into, like, what even is this animal? Um, or even something like a crow, which is one of the smartest birds on the on the planet, and they're all around us. So I kind of, um, I don't know, that's one, one thing that, one of the reasons in the book that I'm kind of, I think it's important to focus on, like, spaces, interstitial spaces that are around the place where you already are um versus like having to make a big trip to Yosemite or something like that. Like I think you can find
0: this kind of feeling actually a lot closer up than you think. I think 100% because I I think even journalists get into this idea especially maybe um uh maybe younger writers who think that you have to like go to Borneo to find like a great story, but the fact is like there are great dozens if not hundreds of really compelling narratives that are just in your own backyard. And similarly you can find just based on the sort of your core ethos as a, as an artist, like you can find wonderful things that are really under your nose if you're just willing enough to sit still enough to notice them.
1: Yeah, totally. Everything has a crazy story behind it. I mean, when I was an artist in residence at the dump, um, which I also talk about
0: in the book, but <laughs> I love uh, that. By the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, what's the best artist residency ever? Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's very telling that um, you know, typically an artist there would make something out of the trash, um, and my project was just. I didn't actually make anything out of it. I just um, basically created like an archive of two hundred objects. Um, where I tried to kind of monomaniacally research their manufacturing origins. And then that turned into, you know, wanting to know why they were made, how they were made, uh, what they were worth, like, you know, the entire life story of this object, including its often strange corporate history, you know, like who owns that company now? What do they do? Um, And um, whenever I would present that work, I would often get this question, um, which is like, how did I choose the objects that went into that archive. Um, Like there's this assumption that I did choose them. And I have sort of an unsatisfying answer, which is that I obviously I had to make some selection, but I really was just trying to get like a good range of objects so that if an alien came down to earth, they would get a good idea of human stuff. Um, So that's like old stuff and new stuff. But you know things that we would consider like vintage and fancy, and then things like you know a My Little Pony toy from two thousand five, hmm. um, and uh, that was partially you know a decision that I made, but it also was just what I was finding was that I think you could go into the dump blindfolded and just pick something out, and there's going to be something very strange about it, somewhere in its history is like something surprising and weird and surreal, um, and it kind of almost became like funny by the end when I was driving myself crazy with all this research where I was like, yeah, it doesn't matter. You can just pick up anything. It doesn't have to even be in the dump. Um, you could just pick up anything off the ground. And um, assuming you have enough traction to find out something about it, um, it's probably going to be something kind of weird.
0: What was the most illuminating um, aspect of, of that project?
1: You know, I talk a lot about context in my, in my artwork, and that was really a crash course and context. Um, I think I might have kind of abstractly thought this before, but I really felt it afterwards that there's no such thing as trash. Um, that if you look at the stuff that's in the dump, and I should mention, you know, this is the public disposal area. So this is where people are kind of driving in U-Hauls and unloading, like decluttering their homes or businesses. So there's a lot of identifiable objects in there versus like, you know, the trash that you would throw out in a trash bag. But um, it really drove home for me the fact that trash is a decision. Like at some point someone looks at something and they see trash and that could be for any number of reasons. It's often because a newer version came out. Uh, it could be because the person was given it as a gift and they never wanted it in the first place. There's all these kind of like circumstances around the object that have nothing to do with its you know physical materiality just as easily. It could become not trash, which is like when someone comes along and says like, Oh, Hey, actually I want that. Or I see some value in that. Um, so it really, um, I, I did some projects after that kind of about that where I was collecting pre trash from people, which is, um, stuff that you haven't gotten rid of yet, but you plan to. So you basically think it's trash. Mm-hmm. Um, I was collecting that from people and then researching it. And at the opening of that show, the visitors to that show were able to claim one of the items for themselves with the red dot that you would use in a gallery. <laughs> Um, and you could, so you could see it in action. Like you could see this person gets rid of this stuffed animal because they hate it. And it's the subject of a long running argument between them and their husband. And then, you know, a couple days later you have someone else come in there like, Oh, I want that immediately. And they have all their reasons for wanting that thing. Um, there are people who got rid of things where they just didn't know what it was. And then someone come in, does know what it is. So they want it. You know, it's like all of these kind of layers of associations and knowledge and, life circumstances um, that are all playing out around this object that the whole time like hasn't changed as an actual object. So um, I think that that was kind of the biggest, most like profound takeaway for me from, from the dump.
0: Huh. And you've uh, you've mentioned that Eleanor Coppola is a, an artistic inspiration for you. And um, I wonder if if you could uh, maybe just share as though why her, her work resonates with you uh, so much and how she's inspired you to, to do do your own thing
1: yeah so i'm really um i mean she's a documentary filmmaker um but the the piece that i talk about in the book is is um one of the only public art installations i know of that she did um and it was basically a map of uh different store like shop windows in san francisco and the the actual piece itself was that on a specific day at a specific time, the, the viewer or the person who had the map was invited to go to any of these locations and just observe what was happening inside the window, which is like, you know, if you're a documentary filmmaker, that is totally the kind of art that you would make, right? It's like basically inviting someone into the documentary filmmaker mindset. Um, but I also really like it because, you know, usually public art, Um, I mean, the average public art piece is like a giant, you know, metal sculpture in a corporate plaza that's very like, you know, here it is, here's the art, you look at the art, you either understand it or you don't, um, and then you're done. And this, you know, the Eleanor Coppola piece is very much um, kind of saying, uh, you know, I'm not going to put art here, I'm just going to highlight something that could be art already, that's already here, if you just kind of look at it in a certain way. Um, I, I feel like it's a bit similar to the James Terrell pieces where you go into a room and there's a s- kind of square shaped hole in the ceiling and it allows you to watch clouds go by. Of course, the clouds are always going by similarly in the Eleanor Coppola piece, like there's always stuff going on in every window, but the kind of artistic act of framing that for someone, um, it actually does render things visible in a way that. Uh, they, they wouldn't be otherwise so if you've ever sat in one of those James Terrell rooms like it you can actually kind of see the speed and the form of the clouds just a lot more easily than you would be able to otherwise um and then you know ultimately the thing I like about both of those is that um even though you have this kind of apparatus that lets you see this stuff um afterwards, you know, like I have never really looked at clouds the same way. I probably look at shop windows differently, you know, all shop windows. So, um, it's, it's both about the experience that you have in the moment, but then it also probably affects the way you look at everything afterward.
0: When you were, say, researching the, the talk that would eventually become the book, you know, what were you reading at the time and what was inspiring you you know, post the twenty sixteen election that really made you want to grab hold of this particular subject and run with it?
1: Um, so there were two books that were really big for me. One of them was um The Genius of Birds, um, by Jennifer Ackerman. Um, and that is, you know, it's just a really good science book. Um, it's about um this kind of sums up a lot of studies that have been done on um intelligence in birds, which, you know, for a long time, were not thought of as being particularly intelligent. Um, and now we know that crows, you know, are some of the only animals to be documented making and using um, what are technically tools. Um, so that, you know, that kind of that's what got me more into bird watching And that obviously had a really big effect on on the main point of that talk. Um, and then the other book was called um, Spell of the Sensuous. I think the subtitle is um, Language and Perception in a More Than Human World uh, by David Abram. Um, and that book, you know, is more sort of uh, not not as like straightforwardly like a science book as the other one, but had a similar effect on me, which was kind of, um, you know, it's, it's actually good. Those are two good books to read at the same time, because one is about how this entire group of animals that you may have written off are actually very intelligent and have things like language. And then you have this other book, you know, reminding you that all, you know, living things have a way of expressing themselves and there is a type of language um, that we've been sort of cut off from. And so uh, it's this kind of reminder to be that, you know, you live in an animate world um, and that there is agency in other living things. And so kind of just like waking up to that. Um, and so that was really, really crucial for for that talk
0: and and, as you were progressing through this, what what did you find that was most um discomforting about the the current sort of digital landscape that has made you want to retreat to the rose garden do engage in more bird noticing and um detach without becoming totally disconnected?
1: Um, I think it was just this kind of um you know sitting there is a reminder of how different a physical space is from you know the way we consume information online um and so that doesn't just have to do with the space it also has to do with me as a um a body and an animal um like that was kind of the the most surprising thing to me reading you know both the genius of birds and spell of the sensuous is like Like you know, it's not just a reminder. Like oh, I live in an animate world, but like I am also a part of that animate world. I I'm kind of made of the same stuff as everything else in this animate world. Um, And so I think um, while you know while I was spending time there, I was kind of able to look back and see that oh, like the thing that so horrifies me about the way I am expressing myself and seeing other people expressing themselves online in this moment of kind of collective rage and paralysis, is that. The The ways that we're communicating and the kind of rate of information that we um, have come to expect um, doesn't really seem to have any respect for things like temporal and spatial context um, or just the kind of lived reality of a body that lives in physical time and space. Like that was a thing that was just kind of really missing for me from that environment.
0: Hmm i i would i suspect that some people that when they when they pick up this book they're like all right i'm going to i'm going to receive a series of uh checklists or boxes that i can check to completely dissociate from social media specifically um something that is algorithmically designed to hijack my attention and keep me there you know for as long as possible and uh that said, that this book isn't necessarily a—it's not a roadmap to that, but it is—it it is a very—it's a brilliant think piece about trying to, you know, reclaim some of your some of your most your valuable attention. So I wonder, like, how what would you tell somebody who might want to disengage? Well, disengage is the wrong word, but to maybe. Reclaim some of their attention back from these from these social media companies where we are, in fact the product that they are trying to sell,
1: yeah, um I mean, one thing I'll say before I even get to that is, um you know, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening right now with uh, trying to actually regulate um the the design of addictive technology. Um, which I think is really interesting. So, I mean, I think there are actually, you know, like concrete things to be done. Um, The kind of stuff that I'm suggesting in the book is almost like things to do in the meantime while we wait for some kind of, you know, like utopian, non-commercial, decentralized social network, which I don't know if we'll ever see. But um, so it has a very kind of in the meantime kind of feeling to it. But um, I think, um, you know, I think it's sort of unreasonable to ask somebody to, stop paying attention to one thing and not suggest, you know, at least the direction of something else to be interested in. I think um, something that I kind of came to terms with while writing this and I'm, you know, I still think about all the time is like, okay, I'm a person who gets absorbed in things very easily. Um, that can be a really bad or a really good thing. Like it's a really good thing when I, you know, I get, I go kind of down a rabbit hole Uh, researching something that's really fascinating to me where I really genuinely learned something at the end and maybe I got kind of lost in that for a while and that that can be a really pleasurable sensation. Um, Or even things like, you know, you are having a really, um, you know, great conversation with a close friend, like time goes by, like you're really absorbed in that. So I don't think there's anything, you know, wrong with that. But then I think, you know, unfortunately, that that, uh, capacity for absorption gets hijacked by these platforms so for me it's sort of like I'm thinking about it in this do nothing farming way where you know in in do nothing farming they didn't use pesticides they just would try to kind of adjust the balance of organisms on the farm like if you have too little of this maybe you need more of this and that kind of thing so I guess I'm just sort of suggesting um, you know pay attention not just like, don't pay attention to your phone. It's like, pay attention to something else, like find the something else that is so absorbing to you that that it's a place that you can go to get away from that. And for me, that just happens to be, you know, um, the Rose Garden, literally, but just also like, you know, ideas about ecology. Um, I I found that um, just looking at other forms of life is so absolutely fascinating and distracting in a good way to me that, uh, you know, in this sort of meantime, it's become like my life raft. Um, like it's something that, um, again, maybe because it goes back to that kind of childlike wonder that has always been there all along. Um, it's pretty reliable as something to kind of, um, uh, walk away towards. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably a good thing that you're seeing so much, um, writing and so many books about, you know, breaking up with your phone and, Um, reclaiming your attention, and and I don't disagree with any of that, but I also feel like, you know, you might do some of those things and then you might be left wondering, like, okay, well, what else, (laughs) where does my attention go now? And I think having somewhere else for it to go would make doing a lot of that stuff a lot easier.
0: What would you say is your current relationship with with your phone and social media?
1: Um, It's definitely not ideal (laughs) still. It's like, (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, like one, one thing I really don't like about self-help books, like, and I think there's a range of self-help books, right? Like there's some that are more subtle than others, but the, but they're really like kind of hyper-capitalistic, like do this one thing and your life will be changed forever. Um, the, the thing that I really don't like about those is that they, they, they are selling you a quick fix. And they're also sort of suggesting that if you, if this doesn't work for you, it's your fault. Right. It's almost like a diet. Like if here's a diet, if you follow this diet, these things will happen. And if it doesn't work for you, it's like, well, you weren't doing the diet like well enough. Um, and so I, I think it's important to allow, you know, allow yourself to just the reality that like technology is, is anything from your phone to like a pair of binoculars, like this kind of idea that like, Oh, we're we, like an, uh, unsubtle anti-technology stance, where you're just constantly trying to rid yourself of this like category of things called technology um, is like not realistic and also not super helpful. But, but in order to admit any kind of um, subtle understanding of like helpful and unhelpful uses of technology, it also means that you're going to have to have the patience to kind of parse through that day by day. Um, And also just like allowing yourself to, you know, like you, you, you may find yourself having to come back over and over again to this this goal that you're holding in your mind and it's not always going to be perfect um but it's like I'd rather sort of have that as my my north star than
0: like beat myself up over like number of minutes spent looking at my screen right and I think one of my favorite tenets in the book it actually comes in the conclusion or the epilogue is when you talk about manifest dismantling and I I love that that idea that it's sort of like uh, progress by by reduction, addition by subtraction, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you can easily apply that sort of ethos to how you even approach your maybe your time online or on your phone. It's like the the dam you reference in Manifest Dismantling. It took something like three years to break down, whereas maybe we want like the bomb to go off and boom, it's done but it actually was like a very incremental process. So maybe it's kind of like you need to kind of wean your way off of these things until you find a new balance, until you've revealed a new and more comfortable landscape that seemed every bit as natural as it was before the thing was even erected.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that just seems like, that just sounds more reasonable to me. And, and I think also the other reason to kind of keep, keep some amount of nuance around the whole thing is that um, I'm also like, you know, a little bit suspicious of the amount of um again, like the sort of like the onus on the individual to kind of um uh police their own habits. Um it's like it doesn't really acknowledge the factors around all of that, which is like what I'm really trying to do in the book is like, you know, talk about the fact that we have things like the gig economy now where a lot of people have to be online. Um, you know, they have very real reasons to believe that their, their livelihoods will be affected if they're not online all the time. Um, and so like, that's, you know, I, I talk about this meantime, it's like, that's all stuff that would need to also be resisted to really like holistically address the problem. Um, and I think all of that stuff is also going to take a lot of time.
0: In your, in in your talk, when you put that picture up of that Fiverr ad, (laughs) I almost threw up on my computer (laughs) when I saw that, that that was actually something to be lauded. Like that to me sounded like a, like a, the, the warning on the side of a pack of cigarettes, but this was actually like the actual, like, these are your badges of honor.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. And you would think it was a joke almost, but I I mean, having, you know, having lived here, um, you know, I, uh, I've seen it very like, uh, close up this kind of, um, I call it like the extreme bottom line mentality. It's like, there's this kind of, uh, ambient, like sharkiness, um, where it's like you, if there's even like one or two people who do this, it affects it for everyone. Right. Where it's like, okay, well everyone like, it's sort of like, okay, what can I disrupt? Right. Like, well, if everyone needs sleep, I'm going to just going to go without sleep. And like, that's going to be the way that I get ahead. Um, and then, you know, that happens enough and it becomes then like a prevailing kind of lifestyle where, you know, I have students at Stanford who, you know, know that they would like to take better care of themselves, but, um, you know, they're, they're competing in an environment where, um, something like that is seen as like a luxury or optional.
0: Yeah. And for people who might not be familiar with this ad it's basically uh, i'm going to butcher the exact wording but one was like you had you had a coffee for lunch sleep de- for deprivation is your friend and blah 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 they're like if this sounds good to you then then you're a doer and it's just yeah. like god what is wrong <laughs> with this picture
1: yeah well and it's so hard right cuz it's like you know it's also hard to disentangle like um some of that like in the situation i just described it's like some of it is like a, a fetishized mentality and then some and then on the other end it's like an economic reality for like a lot of people like you have um you know if you have fewer jobs with benefits and protections then you're going to have more people with like three side hustles um and i i you know it's important for me to talk about that in the book because i'm certainly not um you you kind of can't talk about something like doing nothing or changing your attention without acknowledging that like those are increasingly the circumstances in which people work. And so it becomes even harder to separate, you know, like working time from non-working time. Like basically all time is working time now, not because anyone wanted it to be, but, but like, because of very real material conditions.
0: Yeah. And you make a really good point too, in the book, and in your talk that doing nothing in itself has a a certain amount of privilege baked into it, you know, having, Mm -hmm. having access to To parks tends to fall to the few, and mm-hmm. uh, and having that access, so I wonder. Maybe you can talk to that because that's a really good point you make in the book, and also in your talk.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the in the conclusion, I talk a little bit about um, this potential for gated communities of attention, which is something I get really worried about um, because, um, you know, I because at that point I've drawn this connection between the importance of things like public space and parks and libraries and things like that um, to, um, the kind of contemplation or being able to reflect, um, that I'm talking about, then you just, you know, look at simply like the way, um, you know, you look at how a city is organized and you notice like, Hey, there's a lot fewer parks in this neighborhood over here. And, um, you have like usually wealthier neighborhoods are in the Hills where things are really well kept up. There's lots of kind of spaces to wander around in. Um, my, you know, another funny example is like the roof of the Facebook campus, um, and their newest building is like, it's, it's almost exactly what I'm describing in the book. It's like wandering paths with, you know, native species of plants of everywhere, you know, and it's like specifically designed for wandering because they, uh, you know, are, they're wanting their employees to go up there and contemplate and ultimately come up with like new products. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, so yeah, it's just kind of, these things are very entangled. Um, and I see it as kind of like I think I describe it as a not at one point where it's almost like a chicken and the egg issue where you have, um, you know, if you're, if you have less access to these spaces, then I think you're not going, you know, not going to be able to have um, that time to kind of like um, disengage from the productivity mindset um, and kind of be able to inhabit this other type of self. And then if you're not able to do that, then, you know, Uh, you're maybe more subject to things like the attention economy, which are very seductive, especially for someone who is in a state of discomfort. Um, And then that kind of drives that machine even more. And so there's a sort of weird circular thing that happens um, between those two. Um, And I don't, you know, I feel like the, the more time has passed after writing the book, like that's probably the part that I'm the least satisfied with is like, is not necessarily my description of that. But Um, I kind of wish I had a better kind of response to that situation, but um, I kind of end up saying that, you know, from my perspective, like one maybe possible place to kind of pry that cycle apart is, is just on the level of willful direction of attention um, within like the individual. But again, that just comes right back to the issue of of privilege. So it's a difficult question.
0: Mm. In the, that great uh, Eric Ducker piece on the ringer about, about you and your book and subsequently, um, and Cal Newport's in there with, uh, digital minimalism and, um, basically a profile on, you know, trying to do nothing and detach a little bit and reclaim, you know, attention and and for our, on our own terms. And, and I I think Newport says a really, really brilliant thing there. And he's famous for really not having any social media footprint at all and still being a prolific writer. And, A best-selling author uh he says something like you know because this technology is so new but we've been it's it's become so insidious that we actually think we need it for everything and and i wonder if if maybe extending that question to you like have we been fooled that we actually need this
1: i i don't know i think it's i'm not sure because i i feel like like, yes, I would say yes to like sort of um, like, you know, literally the forms of social media that we have, which are, you know, not ideal. But but on another level, I think that something like social media is um, maybe, I don't know about necessary, but it's certainly useful. So um, I talk about community memory um, in the book, which was a, a bulletin board, uh, like early, one of the earliest electronic bulletin boards. Um, in Berkeley where it was just a kiosk that you would go to and it was actually installed under a physical bulletin board in a music store. And they, um, they just, the the people who made it wanted it to be like the bulletin board, but better, you know, basically like Craigslist. Right. Hmm. Um, And um, it's sort of this reminder that um, sharing information in a way that's like something, you know, a little bit different than like, you know, calling someone or just a one-to-one communication Um, You know, like people sharing information in real time. I think that that, you know, is not only rewarding for people and can be helpful, you know, in a community, but um, it's really useful. Um, I mean, I think about um, I'm on an email list for the Golden Gate Audubon Society. And um, I remember there was an email or I guess a forum post about how this one species of butterfly that everyone had been kind of concerned about, um, that this person had been seeing more of them. And then all of these responses came in where people had, you know, they're like, oh, I've been seeing them in my backyard. Here's a picture of some that I saw. And it's like kind of this beautiful moment of these people all over the Bay Area monitoring this species and like expressing collective concern for it. Um, and I would imagine that, you know, in in a time of increasing climate events, um, like so, something like that is only going to be more important where people are going to need to coordinate with information um, you know, across large areas, you know, within a sort of bounded area. But, um, uh, so I, I think that's why, and I don't, I don't in the book end up coming down very hard on the idea of social media itself. It's more kind of commercial social media Mm -hmm. that is designed to, you know, do other things (laughs) rather than just kind of share information in a utilitarian way.
0: And over the course of your research for the book, which was uh, quite extensive, uh, were there any sort of kindred spirits you stumbled across in the course of your research or like from a different era, a different decade, different times of communal communal areas and even deep history that really just resonated with you?
1: Well, I mean, I spent part of the book talking about Diogenes, who mm-hmm. I love um, <laughs> uh I feel like Diogenes is pretty pretty popular figure, but it's I think it's actually um very humbling to. Realized that people have been funny for a really long time (laughs) um you know like the the greeks had a really great sense of humor um and uh and so i i sort of prize him as a figure who was um kind of doing what as i talk about in the book people have later described as performance art um just doing exactly the opposite of what anyone would expect um and uh i think my favorite Diogenes' story is the one where um, everyone was preparing for some sort of battle in the city that he was in, and he. And so they're all kind of going around very industriously, and then he starts. He he famously lived inside a barrel, so he started <laughs> um, rolling his barrel up and down the hill very industriously. And when asked why he was doing it, said, "Oh, well, you all are looking very busy, so I just wanted to also look busy." Um, <laughs> so. Um, but but uh, I you know he's sort of like I think he was also described as Socrates gone mad, um, and so he has a similar thing you know Socrates is like questioning everything right like um, especially things that are kind of taken for granted and he was was also doing that but he's kind of performing his refusal rather than just arguing it um, and and doing it almost like in a slapstick way and so it's it's just nice to see like um, you know even with that one example with the barrel it's like there've always been these moments where everyone was doing something that was expected of them that like, no one would question, like, of course that's a good, we do it this way. Um, and then you just have this one person who's sort of like off and it's like, actually, I'm going to try to do this other weird thing. And it's like so deeply disturbing to everyone around them. <laughs> um, and so I, I think I, I enjoy that also because, um, doing nothing can be a little bit like that. I, you are in a moment where um, it's assumed that you should be productive all the time, where you should be kind of freaking out all the time. Um, just the image of someone kind of sitting and doing nothing is like kind of unsettling in that um, in that
0: context. And uh, with respect to writing the book and, and your own writing in particular, um, what would you say you, you individually struggle with? And, and just in that Generative phase of trying to get your manuscript done like what what is something that kind of sticks in your side um
1: that's a good question i think um probably the hardest part for me i mean it's funny i just um read a review of my book where they described positively described my chapters as compost piles (laughs) Um, um so um i i think you know as someone who was previously basically a collage artist, um, I it is both my strength and my weakness is like, I'm really good at amassing piles of stuff. I mean, it's like literally what I did at the dump. Um, and then I can sometimes have a hard time um, making that pile of stuff make sense to anyone but me. Um, sometimes I'll be like haunted by this feeling that there is like a connection among all of these things. and I just can't articulate it. Um, and so I, my method has been, and I I think this is pretty common, you know, people write things on note cards, but, um, I'll write, you know, all of the different, and there are many (laughs) elements in the chapter on little cards. And then I would just arrange them on the floor. And I would find that like, I would be moving them around and around for hours until I could like find some order that made sense. Um, and even though that is the hardest part for me, it might also be the most enjoyable because or maybe not enjoyable but it reminded me a lot of my visual work which is if you see it it's just things cut out from google earth that are also arranged in a big pile so um, this kind of action of collecting a bunch of stuff and then kind of arduously working to arrange it in a way where something becomes apparent um it's definitely the hardest part but also the maybe most um indicative of like how my brain works
0: like, what are some, if any, limiting beliefs that you have, um, little speed bumps that you might've put in your own way over, over your 32 years that sometimes have a hard, you know, give you, you know, headaches as you're trying to get work done. You know, we all have them, but I wonder if, wonder if you have any, what they are.
1: You know, it's something that I've thought about a lot already as an artist, but maybe it's become more, come more to the fore as a writer is obviously like you, you want things to make sense. Um, like you want things to make sense to a reader. And then uh, it's sort of an unfortunate stumbling block for me. Is like, I want everyone to agree with me, Hmm. which is like impossible, right? Like if you, and so I've been having to sort of remind myself that if you fulfilled both of those criteria, like you wrote something that absolutely was almost self-evident, um, and everyone agreed with it, you wouldn't have to write that in the first place. Like, it's not a book. Like, you know, it's like if you... In order to have something to articulate, it's like if you're going to make an argument that already implies that somebody is going to disagree with you Um, or it implies some kind of resistance, like you're saying that like there's something that that hasn't been said this way or hasn't been framed this way. And like I'm going to frame it this way. Um, And so, um, you know, it's not really something that I thought about that much while writing. It's something I thought more about after the book came out. Um, and honestly, one of the most therapeutic things <laughs> was, uh, I read Natural Causes by Barbara Ehrenreich, um, which is an amazing, amazing book. I love it. Um, and you know, a lot of people hate that book. Um, you, you can just see easily. see if you look it up online, like it's a very divisive book. And, um, and while, while I was reading it, I know, I know she's like such, you know, she's obviously older. She's a very experienced writer. Um, I love her writing and, It's like, I could, every page that I turned, I was like, I could almost like hear people yelling on Twitter (laughs) (laughs) and like, and then, and you just see that she just like, doesn't care. And she just like, and and she knows, and she just plows ahead and just such a good job. And it's like, it's like, you know, you, it's this, you know, you, you can't write for everyone. Um, and if you did, it wouldn't be good. Um, and so just as a, as a sort of conflict averse person who would, you know, to be honest, like want everyone to like me, like I have to get over that. Um, and, and kind of like, you know, be willing to like stand behind, you know, an argument knowing that, yeah, necessarily not everyone is going to be down with that.
0: And, and given that you're a, a visual artist, did, did writing this book and, you know, becoming an author kind of sneak up on you something you didn't quite expect?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's both surprising and unsurprising, um, because I was an English major um, in undergrad and I took a lot of creative writing classes. Um, uh, my thesis was on Emily Dickinson, which is like the most English major thing ever. <laughs> um, and I've written for, I mean, I have journals going back to when I was six, um, like consistently throughout my life. I mean, I, and it's funny cause I have a lot because I have them. I can go back and look at them and you'll often see things like, like, I'll be like, oh, uh, I have literally no time and I'm like a total mess and I can't do anything. And like, yet I'm like writing about that. <laughs> like, um, like I'm still, you know, that's like the one thing that has never changed. So in that way, it's not surprising just in that, like, I clearly like have, you know, expressed myself that way, at least to myself for a long time. Um, but like career wise, it's very surprising because, yeah, you know, my job is teaching visual art. Uh, I've been kind of like on that path for a long time and I think from the outside it looks like kind of a shift but um like I said with the kind of arranging the cards the way that I write is so similar to what, the way that I make art that at least within my own head it doesn't feel like that big of a a shift. Um in terms of like output yeah it's been sort of surprising
0: in in the in the process of of writing this book and e, or even just doing uh, doing your other work um, where do you feel most alive and most engaged in the process
1: um it's definitely the well I would say like mainly it's the the researching part um, I can think of no better way to spend a day than sitting in the rose garden and reading uh you know I just finished natural causes like in the rose garden the other day but um, because I so you know highly value that feeling of of being absorbed um I really just love the feeling of finding out about things I didn't know about I just you know I'm always chasing after that feeling so um so that's usually the part where I feel the most like excited you know like I have the most momentum you know like I finish I usually finish something and I know exactly what I need to read next which is like often something that came out of the previous book um but I also you know I really like the writing part of it. Um, and, um, it, I mean, it feels different, but, um, I noticed last summer, I would go into my studio and, you know, it's pretty much just me in there and I would write, you know, I have my moments of struggle for sure, but, um, you know, I would write for a pretty long time and then I would leave and sort of feel like I hadn't been there that whole time where I'm sort of like, I look at the pages and I'm like, I don't even know where those came from. Hmm. Um, and I kind of like, that's kind of a weird and mysterious feeling that I enjoy.
0: How are, uh, how are Crow and Croson
1: doing? They're great. They actually, um, earlier, like when we first started talking, one of them came by and was calling very loudly. Um,
0: <laughs> it's 11 o'clock. They, Come on, feed me. Yeah, Give me my peanut. Done that before, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: um, they seem to always wait until I'm like having an important phone call or something and then they, they do that. But, um, <laughs> um. Yeah, they're great. Um, and I, uh, they, they have now. They're a little bit less skittish about coming and just like hanging out on the balcony. Um, so the the background on my phone is an extremely close up photo of one of them, <laughs> where you can see like every single feather. Um, yeah, they're great. And and ever since that uh, field trip that I went on to the the corvid rehabilitation center, I mean, I see them even differently since then. Where I obviously was willing. To recognize that they're very intelligent and that they recognize human faces including mine um but you know having been to that place I now it was a sort of reminder that um you know any animal that that is that intelligent and that social like is going to have a personality um and so it really starts to feel like you know when you see crows flying around that they're almost like little people or something like they have identities they're not just like oh those are some instances of crows like no, so those are like individuals that, um, you know, know each other, recognize each other, have different personalities and different, you know, I even have observed that with the crows, you know, that come to our balconies. Some of them are uh, more gregarious than others. You know, they have different little ways of behaving. So, yeah, they really have personalities and it's really a very good way of getting you outside of the like
0: just human mindset. One of the funniest coffee mugs I have ever seen is two crows just going in opposite directions from each other. And it just underneath it, it just says attempted murder. <laughs> it's really funny. Isn't that great? <laughs> well, Jenny, uh, where can, uh, where can people find you online and get more familiar with your work and potentially, and hopefully buy the book?
1: Uh, just Jenny com, which I was lucky enough to get.
0: <laughs> nice. Nice. So. Yeah, <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for the time. Uh, be sure to give Crow and Crowson a peanut for me and, uh, and, uh, yes, uh, wonderful work. And, uh, thanks so much for the time. It'll, this is great. And I look forward to doing it again, maybe sometime in the not too distant future. I hope.
1: Sounds great. Thank awesome. you so much.
0: You're welcome, Jenny. Take care. Well, how'd you like that? Keep the conversation going on Twitter at Brendan O'Mara and at cnfpod Instagram is at cnfpod and Facebook is at cnfpodcast reach out got questions concerns compliments goodwill good cheer you can, uh, you can find it anywhere you can email the show to creative nonfiction podcast at gmail.com I think it's pronounced gmail thanks again to Goucher's MFA in nonfiction and Bay Path MFA in creative nonfiction for their support And, of course, you, the listener. Share this with a friend, man. It only grows when you endorse it by sharing it with your network. We do things slow around here. Slow is fast in the long term. So you'd like the show, just hand it off. Be like, yo, friend, I think you would like this. Rage against the algorithm. Rage. We're all in this together. If you'd like... I have another podcast called Casualty of Words. It's a micro podcast where I give out little jolts of creative creative inspiration daily. When I cut out the intro and the outro, it's only about a minute to 90 seconds long. Every single day, full transcript at brendanomero.com. Casualty of Words. Get it? What else? I think that's it. And remember, folks, if you can do interview, see ya.